We are going to concentrate once again on, uh, there's just some things that I needed to clean up. Let me, let me begin reading at verse 6, and we'll, um, we've already done 6, but we're going to do through, through 11 tonight, Lord willing. But there's some things I needed to clean up in, uh, that I didn't get to say last week. Uh, for when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die, but God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that... But we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Just a couple of things that I, that I wanted to clean up that I didn't uh, just mention last week, and particularly in verses 7 and 8, uh, this, this idea about no one wanting to die for a, uh, uh, for a righteous, scarcely would one die for a righteous man, but perhaps for a good man, uh, you know, somebody might do it, but the the, the whole idea is that uh, nobody would dare, nobody would dream of dying for uh, someone who is a sinner and an enemy and, and without strength and all that. But uh, the, the, uh, the thrill of the gospel is that God demonstrates his love in that he dies for people like that. I mean, the point that Paul is making is that people wouldn't die for something like that, but God did. You know, and that's the, that's the kind of emphasis he's trying to make. You know, can you uh, imagine we wouldn't dream of doing something like that, but God has seen fit uh, to do that very thing. Um, there is nothing in the objects of his love to evoke his love. Um, nothing that prompted him to love. The great definition or explanation of his love is to be found in his own heart. Um, one other quick thing. Um, I want you to again notice uh, in verse 8 the, the direct connection between the love of God and the cross. But God demonstrates his love towards us. How did he do that? Well, this is when he did it, but how he did it is. Uh, how did he demonstrate love? Christ died for us. The direct connection between... Uh, his love and Christ's death, or the cross. Uh, from a biblical Pauline perspective, ladies and gentlemen, there is nothing that demonstrates, there is nothing that uh, illustrates the love of God like the cross. Nothing. Um, <clears throat> so, um, I think that's all I wanted. Then, uh, over to verse 10. Uh, for if we were enemies, I, we did cover a little bit about that, because I know I told you my wedding story about using the word enemies, and I still haven't, quite figured out why I chose to use that term, but I do know it evokes an enormous response from an audience. Um, for a man or a woman to think that all is well with their souls and then to be called an enemy by the scriptures is something that is, is um, they, they do not sit idly by for. They, 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 will, they will call themselves indifferent. They will call themselves lukewarm. They will call themselves uh, somewhat uh, unattached, but to be called an enemy of God. Oh, no, that's not something that uh, they ever want to dream would be true of them. But um, verse 10, in verse 10, we are introduced to a new word. 
It is the word reconcile, and it's mentioned three times, or at least reconcile, reconcile, reconciliation, in these last two verses. This is a new word that Paul introduces at this juncture, um, and the term reconciled has, as uh, it implies that there is an enmity that exists between two partners. Reconciliation is that act that brings two partners or two people uh, together again. Um, <clears throat> there has been a change in God's attitude towards us. Uh, we were once enemies before uh, we were enemies, but there has been a change in God's attitude towards us even before our attitude towards him uh, is changed. You will notice that it is while we were enemies, we were reconciled. We're still in hostility. And yet, uh, reconciliation, his change of attitude towards us, uh, takes place long before a change of attitude takes place in us towards him. The whole of this section, ladies and gentlemen, is concerned about the love of God to us, not about our love to God. In this whole context of teaching justification by faith, the primary theme is not how much we love God, but it's how much he loved us. The essence, ladies and gentlemen, of the, uh, of the good news of a gospel, uh, our gospel, is that God has seen fit to love people described as he does here. Um, I, I wanted you to, he says that an interesting, you don't need to turn to this, but this is in 2 Corinthians 5. Uh, he says it a different way about this reconciliation. He says, now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. The thing that I wanted you to hear is, now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself. Do you see the primary mover in that? Now, all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself. Uh, this God has done the work to eliminate enmity and, and establish a relationship between sinner and himself. That's going to be very important, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I mean, understanding that is very important. Uh, it, it's going to become very important, I think, in just a minute. The message of reconciliation, that's what is, uh, what is focused here in verse 10 and 11. God has found a way in dealing with us that he no longer has to deal with us as enemies. But, um, but he can deal with us as those whom he loves and forgives. Uh, and the amazing thing is that, um, that God should have any dealings at all with uh, his enemies. But he does. And uh, the way that he found uh, to do that is through Christ. And, and I've pointed this out before, the mediatorial role of Christ. But in these first 11 verses of Romans 5, you will notice that mentioned four times. In verse 1, through our Lord. In verse 2, through Christ. Uh, in this verse 9, through him. And now in, in, again in verse 11, through our Lord Jesus Christ, all of the benefits that you and I enjoy that come from God come mediatorially through Jesus Christ. And apparently, that's the only way that God could find to reconcile us to himself, or surely he would have found, surely he would have taken another route if he could have found one. So God doesn't look upon us as enemies anymore, and, and um, I guess the word that best summarizes how he looks at us 
I think, I think this is probably safe to say. It's not that he looks at us as a friend or as an object. He looks at us as a child, a, a, a family member. Now, there's an, another interesting statement that is made in verse um, 10 that has called some consternation among the people who write commentaries. You will notice uh, in verse 10, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled. We shall be saved by his life. Now, are we saved by his death or are we saved by his life? That's a very odd clause. We shall be saved by his life. And uh, interestingly enough, every translation, I don't know if anybody's got a translation in here that's anything other than that with the preposition by. Anybody's? Your, what is yours? Through. Interesting. Well, um, that's, not, um, that's not as helpful... The Greek preposition. Now, guys, I know you have to trust me in this, but I, I did grab my Greek New Testament and brought it out. And the Greek New Testament is the little word epsilon nu. E-N. In. That is, we are saved in his life. Not by his life, but in his life. That is, in Christ becomes our new address. We, we are not being saved by his life, but in his life. That is God's way of saving us. Guys, if, you ever, um, if you've never seen this, because it's a wonderful, um, really a description of justification by faith. If you've ever seen this, you need to turn and see it with me. Colossians chapter 3. Because this is what I think Paul has in mind. This concept, when he, when he uses these words, we are saved by his life, but uses the, I mean, the, the Greek term is in and I don't know why the translations have, trans, have not translated it that way. But, I'm in Colossians chapter 3, verse 3. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's a wonderful statement, ladies and gentlemen. That's a wonderful statement of safety. You are hidden with Christ in God. There is a sense of encapsulation. That is, uh, that is true of us who have been justified by faith. Um, so I think what Paul has in mind here is more properly translated, we shall be saved in his life, um, not by his life. We are saved in his life. Now, that's not to deny that his life is very important in saving us. He lived the life that we should have lived and died the death that we should have died. But I think what Paul is saying here is, is the same thing he's saying in Colossians 3. We are in him. And our safety and security and permanence, ladies and gentlemen, is as a result of being in him. Therefore, our position is absolutely certain and secure. Um, nothing is more beautiful, at least in, the, in my mind, uh, to, the, to the believer than his security in Christ. Um, and, interestingly enough, there are denominations all across the face of the church that reject such a position. I, I, I don't know why they would want to do something like that. But anyway, um, we come to verse 11, and um, where we'll spend the rest of our time. And not only that, and by those words, Paul connects what he's about to say with what he's just said. And not only that, it's, it's almost as if he's saying, uh, there's still more. And not only that, 
we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. There again, that, that mediatorial role of through the Lord Jesus Christ is how we've received this reconciliation. But the thing that I wanted you to fix your attention on is this emphasis of rejoicing, because it's found three times in the in the eleven verses of Romans, first eleven verses of Romans five. You'll find it in um, uh, verse two. Uh, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And then in verse 3, and not only that, we also glory, which, again, I looked that up too in the, in the Greek New Testament. And the word is translated glory in tribulations, but it's the same Greek word that you find translated in verse 2 as rejoicing, um, called kaomai. But, um, but we, we rejoice in tribulation. That's number two. We rejoice in, in the hope of glory, in, the, in, the, in the, uh, the, the hope of future glory. And then we're told again, finally, in verse 3, that we rejoice in God. We rejoice in the hope of future glory. We rejoice in tribulation. But now we're being told that we rejoice in God himself. One of the clearest marks, ladies and gentlemen, one of the clearest marks of a believer is this dimension that ought to be true of us is that we rejoice. Uh, and the Bible is full of it. And I don't know whether you want to see some of it along with me, but the Bible is full of admonitions and declarations of rejoicing. I'm going to read you two out of uh, Psalm 33, 1. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, for praise from the upright is beautiful. Psalm 34, 1. I will bless the Lord or rejoice in the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Um, you know the admonitions on the part of Paul when he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. That's found in Philippians 4.4. 4. But he also, in Philippians 3.1, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. You find it in the Magnificat. You find it at the very beginning of Mary's understanding that she is bearing the Christ child. She says, My soul doth rejoice in God my Savior. It's a constant theme that's woven throughout the New and Old Testament that one of the things that's supposed to be characteristic of you and me is that we rejoice. And then Paul tells us why we should rejoice. He tells us the reason that we should rejoice is because we've been reconciled. Um, remembering that we used to be enemies of God, and now that we're not enemies in God, enemies of God, that we're reconciled to God, ought to evoke from the people of God a constant stream of rejoicing. Here's my question. Are you? Are you rejoicing? Um, do you find yourself rejoicing in God? If it's one of these themes of the Old and New Testament, where is it? Why is it so rare among us? Um, do you realize, my brother and sister in Christ, that it is your duty to do so. Your duty to rejoice in God. Then if we realize that and we know all these admonitions, where is that dimension to our relationship with Christ? 
would you call it a, um, a frequent theme of your life? That you're rejoicing in God? Well, I, <clears throat> I want to suggest that that's probably not true of many of us. Um, except, of course, Judy Davis. Uh, you know Judy Davis? Judy Davis has never met a day that she didn't like. She is, the, she is one of the most winsome, um, delightfully happy believers I've ever met. I mean, uh, you just you need to know Judy. She's got this infectious laugh. But the rest of us, you know, she left us behind. Um, here we are being told that we are to rejoice in God through, because we've been reconciled. And we say, yes, dutifully and, and uh, piously, we uh, believe in this reconciliation business. But it hasn't produced much rejoicing in us. And why is that? Well, I want to suggest there's two reasons, and that's what I want to spend our last 15 minutes doing, is, is trying to analyze why it is that we as the people of God aren't as full of rejoicing as, we, um, as we've been called to be. One of the reasons has to do with something, um, I don't know what, how we'll call it, we'll call it psychological, or um, um, maybe that's not the right word, but... What, what I'm suggesting is that the people of God fail, I think, at the issue of meditating. That is, responding to what God has said in faith and finding joy in those great promises of, that we find in, in, um, in God's Word. That we're arguing with our souls on the basis of revelation. You know what I mean? Let me show you what the psalmist is doing. If you've not seen this, turn with me to Psalm 42. This, this, is, a, um, this is a good counseling uh, um, uh, point. Get this one, ladies and gentlemen, and then it might carry you to other places. But this is a principle. Um, you, you know this psalm, Psalm 42. It's pretty famous. And do you notice what David says? He repeats it in, in verse 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? He says the same thing in verse 11. Why are you cast down, O my soul? So what is David experiencing? He's certainly not experiencing a full cup of rejoicing, now is he? His soul is cast down. I don't know what you want to call that. You can call it depression if you like. But there is a, there's a sense in which David is absent of some rejoicing. But first of all, you notice what he's doing. He's talking to himself. He looks at his soul and says, why, why are you cast down? That's the first principle, ladies and gentlemen, is what I'm saying is missing. The people of God fail to meditate. They fail to talk to themselves based on the promises and revealed truth of God's Word. Notice what he does. Why are you cast down on my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? By the way, soul, hope in God, for I shall yet praise Him for the help of His countenance. Do you see what He's done, ladies and gentlemen? He's, he's, he's taken up uh, a conversation within His own soul and says, this is unreasonable, soul. It's unreasonable for you to be in the position that you find yourself in. 
What you need to do is remind yourself, O oh soul, hope in God. Um, look with me at Psalm 103. Same kind of, well, the application of what I'm trying to say. The psalmist, and of course it's David, in Psalm 103, beginning at verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will He keep His anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. Now, ladies and gentlemen, what I am suggesting is one of the reasons that there is so much, or so, so little rejoicing among us is that we, we will look at passages like that, and that's what I think when David is talking to himself, that's what he's saying to his soul. Oh, listen up, O oh soul. Uh, don't forget, did you remember, soul, that the, that the Lord is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in mercy? Uh, you know, he's not going to strive uh, uh, always with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. Do you, do, have you forgotten that, soul? Uh, he does not deal with us according to our sins, soul, nor punish according to our iniquities. Don't forget that, soul. And on a basis of what you know to be true about what you've just read here as revealing God's Word, uh, hope in God. One thing I wanted you to see that I read this morning that I just thought was so... This was just in my own um, devotional life. Turn to Psalm 99. I, I think this is... This is something. Um, I'm going to really jump in the middle of the verse. Well, I will read the whole verse. Verse 8. I'm in Psalm 99.8. You answered them, O Lord our God. You were to them God who forgives. Though you took vengeance on their deeds. <laughs> in the same verse, do you see? Only God can be both of those things at the same time to me. He was to me the God who forgives, although he took vengeance on, 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 on our deeds. You know, I blew it and I, I walked waywardly and I uh, disobeyed. And, uh, and uh, he was with me, the God who forgives. But he did take vengeance on my inequity. <laughs> Guys, one of the reasons there's so little rejoicing among us is that we don't, we're not able to take those two things and remind our soul of them. There's very little of the of the role of meditation on promises such as we find here that goes on in our souls. Uh, one big problem is we don't know they're even there. We never spend enough time in here to find them. But I'm saying, guys, one explanation as to why there's so little rejoicing on the part of the people of God is that they're not meditating on these things that we find to be true about God. Did you know that what you might be experiencing right now in terms of a bad hand is God taking vengeance on your deeds. But did you also know that He is to us the God who forgives? He will not deal with uh, forever with us according to our sins. But He does indeed discipline His children. And I, I'm telling you, one of the first things that pops in the minds of any believer who, has, who is going through a terrible time is, does God love me? Am I His? Is He mine? Well, the way we are supposed to handle that, and uh, we don't do it very well, do we, is we're supposed to look at our souls and say, wait, 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 what's up here, soul? Why art thou cast down? Huh? Come on. Don't you remember that He is the God who forgives? That He doesn't 
deal with us according to our iniquities. That He's multiplied tender mercies are fresh every morning. Listen up, soul. But, but that, ladies and gentlemen, is the route to rejoicing. I'm saying we're missing the route and thus any, uh, any alteration of unmitigated happiness throws us for a loop. That's one reason I think there's such a dearth of rejoicing among. There's a second one, ladies and gentlemen, and it's a theological reason. That, I think, is fairly practical. I think one of the ways that the route out of our, our own gloom and despair is to talk to our souls like David did. But there's another reason that I think hinders us from, from heeding the, adver, the, uh, the admonitions of Paul to rejoice, and it's a purely theological one, and really... It all has to do with a flawed and defective understanding of the work of Christ. It all has to do with a, a, um, a failure to understand fully the truth of justification by faith. Um, I sat in my office a long time today trying to figure out how to best, how to best tell you and, and, and I, I didn't come up with anything very good, so don't, don't get your hopes up. But the idea that God has, has found a way to save an enemy, and he has done it in a way that is completely apart from the enemy's performance, that ought to be something, ladies and gentlemen, that it would indeed prompt us to rejoice in God. That God found a way to reconcile me completely apart of anything that I offered. Ladies and gentlemen, you do realize, don't you, that if God asked you to come up with any part of the deal, if he asked you to come up with perfect faith, you wouldn't make it. If he asked you to come up with perfect love or perfect repentance... But he found a way to reconcile sinners to himself and then give me the gift of faith and repentance. You see, I, I think we often find ourselves in, the, um, in, in, in a mindset that, that Paul's deal, that the Galatian error kind of creeps in. Do you know what I mean by the Galatian error where, where um, Paul is out there uh, preaching justification by faith alone and, and um, everybody you know, says, oh, wow, that's a great message, Paul. Justification by faith alone. Put me down for that. And then Peter comes to town. And Peter says, um, and some, some of those converted Jews take him aside and he says, and they tell Peter, and they say, Peter, you know, what we really need to do is uh, we need to circumcise these people. Because, you know, yeah, you've got to believe in Jesus, but you really need to circumcise them. You know, you really need to get them circumcised. And um, and so Paul comes to town saying, what have you done, Peter? You have, you have opened the door to add something back to a finished and completed work that Christ has performed. And that's what we do. I had a woman tell me the other day, <laughs> and, and I, I can't, I just, I don't even know what to say because it's, it's such flawed thinking that um, she went out and got bapt baptized again just to make sure. 
Do you see, ladies and gentlemen, I want you to be baptized. And if you've never been baptized, you need to be baptized. It's a very important uh, sacrament that you have not submitted to. But if you by any means think that that baptism in any way is going to improve, make sure, make certain, make full, make complete uh, your, your salvation, I'm telling you, you are in a dangerous position. And, and in terms of safety and security, you'll never have any of it. Because you're constantly, well, if I didn't get baptism, well, hey, maybe that baptism was a wrong baptism, or maybe I didn't do this, or maybe I didn't do that, or maybe I didn't do the other. This, the, the, I'm saying that theologically, we have not yet grasped the beauty of this offer of the gospel that is free. We've not yet enjoyed, we've not yet drunk deeply, real deeply. You know, it... I, I, um, I have prayed of late that God would give me some more years because, number one, I want to understand grace better, but I also want to preach it better. I want you to understand it. I want you to understand grace and drink the, to the dregs. And I'm suggesting when we do, there'll be more rejoicing among us. Because this gospel, ladies and gentlemen, is not just... Uh, not just good, it's far better than that. We, we also, I think, tend to look too much at ourselves and the, and the blackness of our own hearts. Let me tell you, ladies and gentlemen, you keep looking at your heart, and every time you pick up a rock, something ugly is going to squirrel out from underneath it. When I was in seminary, this guy, and we'll, we'll, we'll close with this, but he, this, we had to do this thing called a senior sermon. And uh, it, it became affectionately known as the senior sacrifice. And because what they would do is um, the senior, the graduating seniors would get a, uh, every Thursday they would preach. And all of the, uh, the faculty would sit in the chapel. And uh, after he was through preaching, the faculty then critiqued his sermon in front of the whole student body. <laughs> and we never missed Thursday because we knew it was going to be awfully bloody. Um, so we would go in there just thinking, okay, how's Kistemacher going to get him now? You know, and, and they would say something. And I'm telling you, they never were very kind. I remember one time being real kind to T.J. Mercer. And, uh, but it was unusual. But anyway, this guy, this senior got up to preach his, his senior sermon. I mean, you know, this is, this is supposed to be the crowning blow of your seminary experience. And you're about to head out to some poor pulpit. And, you know, and this guy, you know, is not what you would call... A, um, he, he just, I mean, knowing him, you knew that he wasn't going to, he wasn't going to wow you in the pulpit in any way. You know, he's kind of a laid back, kind of demure kind of fella. And, and there wasn't going to be anything razzmatazz about this guy. And um, he got up there and told a story. And I'm telling you, everybody in that chapel was on the edge of their seats. <laughs> he, he, the story was about him being from the Midwest. And out in the Midwest, you know, it got real cold out there. All he has is corn and, and all that business. And so, um, but in the wintertime, and they all had basements in their houses and, and wherever it was he was. But uh, uh, every spring, uh, he was assigned a family chore and duty. And his family chore and duty was to clean out the basement. And um, now that doesn't sound so bad, except that in the Midwest, in all those fields where all those corn stalks are, during the winter, all the rodentia 
uh, of, of the area would flee into the warmth of these basements. And so his job every spring was to go down into the basement and clean out all the stuff, you know, that, I mean, all the bathrooming and the, some of the rats would die and, you know, they'd, they'd rot and, they, you know, he, just, he went on and on. I can go for on if you'd like for me to. Uh, but, I mean, he was just talking about this scene and he said he would go down, he would take, he would, he would take this lamp and we'd go down those steps, and I would every step, and more, and every step that he went down, he could see more, and then, and he'd hear this, you know, and um, and, and it was his job to, you know, clean out the traps and clean up the stuff and uh, and get the dead ones out and and you know all that ugly, bleh. and and what his point was. Uh, it, uh, his text was, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And what he was saying is that the word of God is this lamp that every time I take it down into the recesses of my heart, I find some rotting carcass. Don't do that, brother and sister. Don't do that. You need to let the light of God's word shine on your sin just long enough until you're convinced that you desperately need Christ. If you keep that up, that is, let's flip this rock over and there's an oh, and here's another one. Oh. If you keep, if you, if you concentrate on nothing more than exposing the rottenness of your soul, because I guarantee you, ladies and gentlemen, it's there. It's there in every one of us. Um, we need to look at it just long enough to know that we flee and we race to the provisions of Christ at Calvary. Don't stay there, ladies and gentlemen. Um, my... Uh, my, my buddy Ben Clark over here has got this phrase that he uses, and it's a very inappropriate phrase. But he's right. All of us, it's not, it's not an inappropriate phrase, it's a dangerous phrase. All of us have to get happy. That's not anybody's. We, we have to get happy with our humanness. You have to come to terms with your humanness. And ladies and gentlemen, that's a truism. You need to come to terms with the fact that there is none good, no, not one. That there's nothing about you that is, has made you appealing to God. There's nothing about you that has evoked His love for you. Nothing. And you need to know that and know it well just long enough to know. I better get to Christ. And I better camp out there. And I'm suggesting, were we to do such a thing, we'd find more rejoicing, which is supposed to be characteristic of us. Let's quit. Our Father, we do thank you for all of your kindness showed us in Christ. We are... Uh, oh, my goodness, Lord. It, it is, it is uh, understated to call us blessed people. On resurrection morning, we'll be very sorry that the only word that we could find was blessed. 
We are reconciled to the God who was offended by our sin. And reconciled because he initiated love to his enemies. And now we are no longer enemies. We're children. And I pray, O oh God, that you'll teach us how to take your word and apply it to our flagging hearts and bring us out of the depths of our own despair and anxieties so that we might bear more marks of the genuine. A soul that rejoices in God. We ask it all, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen.